Amen. I'm going to give you the title right off the bat. Today's sermon is called Great Boldness Equals Gospel Readiness. Yes, we're talking math at Auburn Community Church today. Great boldness equals gospel readiness. I want to argue today that to the degree that we are bold in our faith as Christians is equal to the degree that we are prepared to step into moments with knowledge and a worldview that has been created around the kingdom of God. Now that title might make zero sense to you right now. I promise it will make sense as the word gets fleshed out. But we're in this moment in Acts where Peter and John are defending a miracle where a guy couldn't walk for 40 years, now he can walk and everybody's mad and upset about the authority that they have to do such a miracle. Peter and John are explaining the authority comes from the name of Jesus, the rabbi who you crucified, who's actually the Messiah. And they're putting the pieces together for the Jewish people to understand this wasn't just a teacher who did a few miracles. This was the son of the living God, the promised Messiah who rose from the dead. His power is on display. And even though you crucified him, you can actually join him in the mission of God on planet earth right now. And they step up in this moment of incredible boldness, but they step up because of a level of preparation that is noted in Acts chapter four. And as I was reading this passage and thinking about, God, how do you want me to preach this to ACC on this particular Sunday? I feel so strongly that this is not just the message that needs to go out on May 21st, 2023. This is the message that needs to go out to our church in general right now. You know, not all sermons are created equal. There are times where I get in front of you and I'm honestly just as curious as you are to see how this goes. And there are times where I get in front of you and just feel like, whoa, I could be wrong, but this could be something special if we get it. And that's how I feel in this moment. Not that I have some amazing, like charismatic presentation to bring before you today. I feel like I just have a new angle and perspective on Acts chapter four that could open our eyes to why so few of us are actually bold in our faith. Did you bring your Bible to church today? If you have your Bible, hold it up. All of our locations, hold it up. Just because I'm curious and because this is very relevant in Auburn right now, keep your Bible up if you have never walked into a Bucky's before in your life. Just keep your Bible up. I wanna know if there's a few other. Yes, the remnant. Slayton. <laughs> You are 96 years old and you have not been to a Bucky's. My guy, I love it, I love it. Turn with me to Acts chapter four. Acts chapter, I don't, I'm not hating at all, I just don't understand. Someone enlighten me. How is it, and I've driven by on I-85. It's a gas station and there it is like packed out out there at all times. I drove by at the most random, I was coming home from Birmingham one night after an event that we had out there and I drove by and I'm like, there are cars filling this parking lot. What in the world is going on? At a, and some of you are looking at me like, oh, he just doesn't get it. I don't, you're right, you're right, I don't understand. But my kids have been giving me a hard time. Like, what do you guys wanna do this summer? You wanna go to Disney? You wanna go to the beach? Dad, can we go to Bucky's? I'm like, we need to get you some new friends. Turn, I'm just kidding, love you if your kids told my kids that. We're gonna pick up in uh, verse 23. Tyler left off when Peter and John are released, but the fact that they're released shouldn't distract you from the fact that they were threatened. The Sanhedrin 
gathering of the Jewish leadership told them, you are to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And when they make this threat, it's not like a slap on the wrist. Hey, you might get in trouble if you do this again. This is a, hey, we're the same group of people who had Jesus crucified. And so when they threaten, you do not need to speak in this name any longer. This is a threat that goes against their families, against their futures, against their businesses. Like this is a telling moment of resistance for a church that went, remember, from 120 to 3,000 to now 5,000, brand new move of God spreading in the book of Acts. But this is the first moment of resistance. Peter and John get released, but they are threatened. And now they're gonna go back to the church. Let's see how they respond. We're gonna read this whole section. Acts chapter four, verse 23. If you're there, say I'm there. It says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Great boldness equals gospel readiness. If you're tracking along in your Bible, go back up to verse 23. Let's just make sure this all makes sense. It says, when Peter and John were released, they came back to the gathering of the people of God and their immediate reaction with the threats that they received with this scary, uncertain moment is prayer. We need to remember that the early church's plan A, no plan B was always prayer. Their knee-jerk reaction was not, hey, we're being threatened, so let's strategize how we can share the gospel without the Sanhedrin finding out. And maybe if you go here and I go here, and we know it wasn't more strategy. It wasn't more boardroom sessions on church growth. It wasn't, here's how we deal with this problem. Their plan A was always, let's go to the God of the universe through prayer, since we're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and in the name of Jesus, come before him and expect him to help us. ACC, I do not care how much money we raise, how many buildings we build, how far our reach goes, or how cool our music is. Our plan A is not the execution of services on a Sunday. It is desperate prayer before Almighty God. That's plan A. That will always be plan A. No plan B. Because when you graduate from that, you sacrifice the power that was readily available at the beginning of this story. So they pray. And what do they pray? Sovereign Lord. Circle that phrase. That's a common way of praying in the Old Testament. Sovereign Lord, you see this all throughout the Psalms. It's a way of acknowledging God's power in creation and his power and control over the present. I remind us as often as I can that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts to connect the redemption story of God from Old Testament to New Testament. Last fall, we went through the Gospel of Luke. Now we're in the book of Acts, and I try to tell you guys that every week. You're like, Miles, this is getting kind of repetitive. Maybe. 
after a semester in Luke and an entire year in Acts, you just might remember for the rest of your life that Luke and Acts were written to continue the redemption story of God from Old Testament to New Testament. So there's a part of the Jewish mind that would read that phrase, sovereign Lord, and go, huh, this is not a new way of praying. This is prayer to the same God. What is their prayer? You made the heavens and the earth. You're the one in total control. And then they quote a psalm. It's Psalm 2. It's the same psalm that Cheryl read to start this gathering. Some of y'all might be like, whoa, did that just happen randomly? No, we planned that, talked about it this week several times. Psalm 2 is a psalm of David that's all about kings and rulers of the earth understanding their place in the sovereign hand of God. Why do the kings of the earth plot in vain? It's about how people of power, God-given power, by the way, think they have power, but if they refuse to bend the knee and surrender to the Lord's anointed one, they need to be careful. Psalm 2, kiss his son and God will be gracious, but fear the Lord. There's a level of God being in total control of the story, even when it looks like human beings are taking things in their own direction. And then the prayer shifts and it says, indeed, Psalm 2 is what happened to Jesus when he was in front of Pilate and Herod. What happened when Jesus was in front of Pilate and Herod? It looked like they were in total control and they were just going to put him to death. But God was the one who in a sovereign way was working out all of these details to save humanity and deliver the church into this moment. Now, everybody look up here and don't miss this. That all was a setup for what this prayer is all about in Acts chapter four. That whole beginning part about sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. Psalm two says, why do the nations plot in vain and the rulers of the earth think they can do whatever they want to do? They are setting up what they are about to ask God for. And their setup is, hey, remember what you did for Jesus when it seemed like the rulers were in total control, but you were actually telling a story that was greater? We are aligning ourselves with our Savior, and in the same way, we want you to hear the threats that are being imposed against us and do something for us like what you did for Jesus. And what did they ask? Verse 29, this is huge. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Now, Lord, in light of the fact that you're in total control, even when human beings think they can do whatever they want, consider their threats. And what? Enable us to speak on with even more boldness. That should catch you by surprise if you are paying any attention to this sermon right now. Wait, now, Lord, consider their threats. Hold on, you're praying to the sovereign God of the universe who's in total control of the story, Why are you praying God enable us to be bold instead of praying God deliver us from this uncertainty? Most of us in the exact same moment would go, God, you heard their threats and you're the one in total control. So obliterate them and deliver us. But instead of praying God lessen our pain and difficulty, the prayer is increase our faith and courage. I am not going to get in front of you and tell you that you can't ask God to decrease your pain and difficulty. He's a good father. He loves it when we bring our burdens to him. We need to cast all of our anxieties on him. You can come to God with whatever you need to bring to God. And he is a God who cares for you and meets you right where you are. But in the new era 
of Jesus being risen from the dead, the pursuit of a Christian has to shift from how do I live my life from start to finish and mitigate and limit the amount of tension and pain I experience and make it to heaven. That is no longer the prayer. That's no longer the pursuit. That's no longer the goal. And to be honest with you, for the vast majority of us, functionally speaking, that's exactly the way we live. How do I make it in and out of here, live for God, and minimize the amount of pain and suffering I have to experience, minimize the tragedy, minimize the difficulty, and as much as I can, call on God to help me in that minimization. So much so that we feel like something went off when things spin out of control or look like they're gonna turn out in a way that we didn't originally want. And there's gotta be a shift. There's gotta be a shift in our perspective that goes, a tragic life is not necessarily a life loaded with pain. A tragic life is actually a life void of meaning. So what's sad about life is not that something hard or difficult might hit you. And I don't want that to happen to you, but we live in a broken world. It's coming whether you want it or not at some point. But too many of us make it our goal and our ambition to just, how do I organize my life to where I minimize the amount of suffering I have to experience and then I make it to heaven and can enjoy Jesus forever. The prayer has to shift to, no, Jesus is risen from the dead. I've been promised forever with him. And that promise is not supposed to make me timid and asking God to limit my pain now. That promise is supposed to make me bold and ask God, God, would you embolden my faith to be a witness for you in the meantime, because I got a promise called forever. There's gotta be a shift and there's gotta be a change in perspective that goes, God, more than I want all of my tension resolved, I want a meaningful life. And you will not get a meaningful life absent of pain, suffering, and uncertainty. You just won't. In fact, pain, suffering, and uncertainty has a way of putting a megaphone to your life and bringing the very meaning that your soul most desires in the first place. So when they pray, instead of praying, God, deliver us, it's God, embolden us with more. What does God do? Read verse 31, because this does not happen often in the Bible when someone prays. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God always answers prayers even when there's silence, it is very rare in the scriptures for God to immediately physically respond to a prayer and meet the needs of the prayer to the exact specifications of what was asked. In the moment, they're going, God, enable us. You heard their threats. And just like Jesus, you were sovereign over his story when he was in front of Pilate and Herod and they thought they were controlling the narrative, but you were controlling the narrative. We acknowledge that God, Psalm 2 is still true. God, would you hear their threats and enable us to speak with boldness? And God goes, yes, he loves that prayer. There is something about this prayer that moves the heart of God more than, once again, I'm not saying these are bad prayers, but there is something about this prayer that moves the heart of God more than, God, please make my pain go away. Please make their threats go away. Please make this easier. Please take the tension and make sure we don't get hurt. God is going, I like what is being prayed for here. The place is shaken and the prayer is answered and they are filled to speak the word of God boldly. Now, everybody look up here. Don't miss what I'm about to say because this is gonna go in a direction that most of us probably won't see coming. 
this seems like a sermon that is just teed up for me to make really plain for all of you. Pray for boldness instead of praying for everything to get easier, right? Like that, I already preached that. It's like, just repeat that, put it into three points and, and let's go have lunch and enjoy our Sunday. And that's honestly what I was going to do. But as I read this, I saw the courage that was present in this room and asked the question, is Auburn Community Church in a position to actually ask God for more boldness on top of boldness that is already being displayed. Because Acts 4, when they pray for more boldness, is not the first time that word courage or boldness is mentioned. It's mentioned earlier in the passage in something Tyler read last week. And as I was doing my research on the background of that word, which I'll explain to you in one second, I realized that it would be very problematic and honestly a little bit dishonest for me to get in front of you and go, guys, as a church, we got to ask God to fill us with boldness so that we can testify in power and he'll move through us. And maybe even the building will shake as we're praying and the Holy Spirit will fill us to be witnesses. It would be dishonest for me to say that because these disciples were already bold, praying for more boldness. And the vast majority of us haven't even begun that journey. This is sad and it's hard, but I have to be real with you. This is like in the fall, I did a sermon on prayer in Luke 11 on the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus teaches on prayer and he says, when you pray, and then he teaches the disciples how to pray. And I told you on the fall, I was like, y'all, this is kind of embarrassing, but I can't even preach the part that Jesus taught because most of us are skipping the first three words. When you pray. So like his teaching won't be relevant to you until after you actually start praying. So let's do a sermon. This is what I did about why you're not praying and get you started. So it's a little bit embarrassing to go, I can't even apply the actual teaching because I haven't started at the elementary level of what it means to have an entry point to prayer. Yeah, that's kind of what today is. Because I recognize that our church is not in a position to go, God, we're already being bold. Fill us with more boldness. Our church is in a position to go, what is boldness in the first place? And what would it look like for us to begin expressing this in a way that looks like what they were doing 2,000 years ago? And the way you discover it, go back to verse 13 in chapter four, if you still have your Bible open. Like I said, this is something Tyler read last week when they were testifying in front of the Sanhedrin. It says this, it says, when they, that's the Sanhedrin, saw the courage, circle that word courage, of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That word courage is the same word for boldness later in Acts 4. It's the Greek word, and we'll put it on the screen, parisia. I wanted to say it with a little bit of a Greek accent. Can you look at somebody next to you and say, Parisia, Parisia. There's a lot of ways to say it. I looked up all kinds of different translations, but the American way is Parisia, okay? This type of courage, do not miss this, is a courage that is about being outspoken about the identity and significance of Jesus. So when you read courage or boldness in Acts 4, it's not about audacious faith. It's not about, oh, this was a loud Enneagram 8 who had a strong opinion. Like, no, 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 it's not, it's not like strength. It's about being outspoken. And it says, when they saw the courage, the parisia of Peter and John, and saw that they were unschooled, ordinary men. That's, that's, that's kind language in English. The Greek word for unschooled, ordinary men is the translation that we have of the word idiot. When they saw that they were idiots, stupid, ignorant, they took note 
that they had been with Jesus. In other words, what were they noticing about them? They weren't going, man, these guys are courageous. They're just so amazing. They're so brave. No, they were going, who do, these, who do they think they are interpreting Torah and the law and prophets to mean that this Jesus is the son of David who died for the sins of the world and is risen from the dead. They shouldn't even have the authority to interpret scripture, much less make the reach that this man is the son of God and have the audacity to stand in front of us and say that. And it says, as they were marveling at the fact that this was even happening, it's almost like they were asking, how do these guys know this stuff? They took note, oh yeah, they've been with Jesus. It's not that Jesus' courage rubbed off on them. It's that Jesus' teaching was digested by them, and now they're regurgitating it. They've been with him. That's how they know this stuff. They were listening, and now they're just repeating. What They didn't even go to school for this. They didn't even sit under the teaching of an official rabbi like us, but yet here they are, watch this, displaying courage because on an inner level, they were prepared to do so. And I wanna argue today, ACC, look at me and don't miss this. Our lack of courage that we have as a church isn't the result of fear. It is the result of being unprepared. I think as a church family, we are not very courageous in our faith, not because we're scared, but because we're unprepared. By the way, being scared, not a bad thing. You, you like need fear to be present for courage to be present. If you're not afraid, courage and boldness doesn't stand out. There's not anything to be afraid of. So the goal of courage is not minimize fear as much as possible. The goal of courage is to decide where you're going to take a stand. And I would argue today that so few of us display real boldness, and it's not because we're afraid of what other people will think. It's because we're too lazy to actually do the work. They'd been with Jesus. They learned, and now they know. You could do the same thing, but you don't, and I don't. When they learned that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they took note that they had been with Jesus. I wanna make the statement today, here's kind of the whole sermon in one observation, that we lack great boldness because we lack gospel readiness. We lack great boldness because we lack gospel readiness. Y'all please keep tracking with me because I promise this is going somewhere. I chose that word readiness because it's in the armor of God. It's one of the things in the armor of God that's the most neglected, the shoes or the sandals, if you will. What does Paul say in Ephesians? Feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In other words, in the armor of God, there's a posture to your feet that looks like I'm ready. And, and my observation in Acts 4 is that they are bold because they know their stuff and they have prepared in their unique cultural moment to take a stand and they know what to say. Their feet are fitted with readiness. And for the past few years, there have been countless cultural issues that have shaken the faith of most Christians, but also shaken us as a culture in general. And most of us have become contented to just outsource boldness for somebody else to do for us. 
So since 2020, there have been countless issues where Christians have had to come up with a defense of, hey, what do we believe about sexuality? What do we believe about gender? What do we believe about marriage? What do we believe about the unborn? What do we believe about racial injustice? What do we believe about politics? What do we believe about wearing a mask? What, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I'm just remembering 2020 a couple of years ago and going, man, I'm so glad that is behind us. But in, literally in the past three and a half years, more times than I can count as a pastor, because this is my job, I've had something happen in culture that has caused me to go, okay, I think I know what I believe about that, but I need to like dig through the scriptures and just make sure I'm standing on solid ground and I'm articulating for our people kingdom realities that they can stand on because you guys are looking to me in moments that are very difficult culturally to go, give us the truth of the scripture so that we can make sure our hearts and more importantly than that probably, our minds are aligned with the truth of scripture. And, that, and that's my job. I'm not saying that's anybody else's job in the room, but I would say during that time period, it's become very easy for the average Christian to hide behind a screen, share a reel on Instagram or TikTok, and have a worldview that's more shallow than the kiddie pool and pretend to be bold. And whether I'm your pastor or not, it has become so trendy to just align your theology or your belief with, yeah, our pastor said that, so that's kind of where we stand. Or this guy said that, that's kind of where we stand. But, but Christians are not actually getting alone with the word of God and with the right resources and building a worldview that's well thought out and full of grace and truth to actually be prepared to be bold in our cultural moment. And so we lack boldness, not because we don't want to be bold for the glory of God. We lack boldness because we're not actually ready. And I want to argue that we have to develop a worldview that is strong enough to stand in our moment. 2000 years ago, the issue that Peter and John had to be able to articulate was how is this Jewish carpenter of the tribe of Judah, son of David, how is he actually the son of God, the payment for sin, ushering in a kingdom? And they needed to know how to connect the dots from all of these stories from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I would argue today, yes, that is very important for you to know. Jesus is actually the promised Messiah. He came to die for your sins. He's risen from the dead. And this is the story God's been writing from the beginning. That's very important for you to know and acknowledge. But 2000 years later, that's not really the question our culture is wrestling with. That, okay, I'll say it this way. That's not really the question that's gonna get you in front of a group who's threatening you. Going, if you're gonna teach that he's the Messiah, we're gonna have problems. Our issues are more about human identity. Our issues are more, can you articulate kingdom realities about the most divisive issues in our world and in our culture? Can you talk about why the sexual ethic of a believer is actually the best way for a human being to flourish and rooted in God's original beautiful design of man and woman and lived out through the covenant of marriage and have grace for whatever someone's background is, whatever happened to them growing up and whatever they've learned so far and be relatable enough to stand on solid ground but to love people right where they are. Can you do that? Can I do that? And the sad thing is, we have all of the resources and the relationships at our disposal to do it. It's just easier to let somebody else say it better than you can say it and not actually articulate or live true boldness. And I want to call us out as a church right now and go, we've become lazy. We have to do the work at every age. I'm saying like, 
12-year-old in the room, 14-year-old, you really need to be diving deep into the word of God and listening to the right voices outside of a 40-minute sermon on Sunday to make sure on all of these divisive cultural issues, you actually know where you stand. Here's the whole sermon in one sentence. You ready? We must be prepared to articulate kingdom realities into divisive cultural issues. We must be prepared to articulate kingdom realities into divisive cultural issues. Peter and John had boldness. Why? Because they knew how to address the cultural issues of their day from a space of being taught by Jesus. Can you do the same thing? And yeah, I mean, we're going to go there. I've already referenced abortion. I've already referenced gender. I've already referenced political divisions. I've already referenced diseases. I mean, we we could go far into the list of things that our culture right now doesn't just reject the Christian perspective, but hates it and doesn't truly understand it. And then God has gifted the church with certain voices of reason, voices like Tim Keller, who passed away this week on Friday, And y'all are not even going to believe me when I say this, but this sermon was already done before Tim Keller passed away. And if you know who Pastor Tim Keller is, you know that that, can we we put that uh, phrase back on the screen just so everybody online can see it and we'll leave this one up here. This is literally what he gave his ministry to. Being able to, in an intelligent way, articulate kingdom realities in the middle of New York City to a culture that had turned their back on God, to a culture who thought God's ignorant, irrelevant, and lost in the past. And he was able to go, no, this is actually what it means to be human. This is actually the pathway to live a flourishing life. God is not holding out on you, but actually has the best for you. And his voice became one of the most prominent voices that absolutely impacted my life. And I couldn't believe that this was the sermon God gave to me this week, the week that his legacy is going out for millions of people to hear that for the first time. But here's the thing. It's not about just reading a Tim Keller book or regurgitating a quote. It's about, have you invested into the right resources and relationships to build a worldview on solid ground? Do you know your stuff is like my question. And if you're here and going, not yet, welcome to the club. You need to be discipled. So what what was it about the disciples that helped them? They were discipled. So you need to be around Jesus. So many people for the last nine years have asked like, at at a young age, how am I up here proclaiming some of the things that I'm proclaiming with with the level of of, of knowledge and background that I have at the age that I am? And and there's no special level of expertise that I have, or I I believe like some kind of special gifting that I have other than as a like young teenager, I ripped up my teen study Bible and spent a lot of time with God. So a lot of times what y'all see on Sunday is just regurgitated stuff that happened in the secret place. Have you gone to that place to allow God to form your worldview on such a deep level that you know you're standing on solid ground? I'll tell you what what our world's gonna be looking for in just a couple of years, and as our culture becomes more and more progressive and more and more secular, here's here's what's actually beautiful about that, is that is ground that is so shallow and then sinks so fast. Like you live your life according to progressive ideologies and you will end up so empty so fast and our world, in a very short time, this is what I talked about that's happening in the United Kingdom right now, is going to be going, where can my foot land that's on solid ground? 
And if Christians are not in a position of loving relationships with those lost people, but also a depth of knowledge to go, my life stands on ground that's actually well thought through, that's actually founded on a worldview that looks like the glory of Jesus mattering across the board. If we don't have that space for people to land, then we are missing a golden opportunity for the kingdom of God to go out in our day. This is what boldness looks like. Boldness looks like, have I done the work to make sure I know where I stand? And then when the opportunity comes, and it will, and by the way, the opportunity is not you going and standing on Tumor's Corner with a megaphone. That's not our play. Our opportunities are relational. Build real relationships with real people. And when you earn the right to be heard, and they go, hey, tell me more about this, you're able to go, I know on the surface it sounds like This is so exclusive and so anti what it means to be human, but here's why your view on the world is actually flawed and will destroy your life, and here's why Jesus is the rock-solid foundation that you should build your life on. And I know right now, as I look into y'all's faces, and I I would assume this is true about our other locations, there's an intimidation like, no, not me. Miles, I need your number. I need to be able to get you there or I just, I need to have like John Piper queued up to be able to send to them. No no doubt, I'm not saying you're gonna become a scholar, but I'm saying with the amount of resources and relationships you have at your disposal, just by being in this room, it would be utter laziness for you to live one more day of your life unprepared to engage a lost world in need. If you're like, what are the right resources? You're at a church that would love to tell you the ones that we recommend. What are the right relationships? This is why in our church, the more mature believers have to become more committed to pouring out what God has built into their life into the next generation. This is why we tell you guys to serve. It's not so we got all these college groups and we need places for them to meet. If y'all would just open your homes, we would have enough places. And many of you have, and actually we do need that. Um, So keep doing that. But it's so that real relationships can be fostered and discipleship can flow. Everybody okay? I know this one's really personal, but I believe we gotta become prepared to articulate kingdom realities and this will not happen in the vacuum of a 40 minute, sometimes 45 or 50 sermon per week. It just won't. This is not about more sermons. This is about a lifestyle committed to, hey, this Jesus thing has to be deeper than a passionate moment of worship with Hillsong United playing. This has to become deeper than that felt inspiring. Or no, this has got to go deep within us so that a lost world will see what we have and know it's actually solid. And there's actually something real here. Two points and then I'm done. I'm already over time. That's great. Uh, everybody good? Everybody okay? Look at somebody next to you. Say, I'm okay. Are you okay? Um, I just want to keep the conversation flowing. Okay. Two points and then I'm done. Number one, prepare to be outspoken about Jesus. What does it mean to be prepared to articulate kingdom realities into divisive cultural issues? It means number one, being prepared to be outspoken. I told you guys earlier, Parisia is about being outspoken. Outspoken means frank in standing or opinion. Does anybody in the room know someone who's outspoken about stuff? Like like somebody who has a strong opinion about everything. It doesn't matter what the subject is. It's like, they've got a thought. They're gonna put in their two cents. The amount of like husbands and wives conversations that are happening, right? It's great. Um, This might come as a shock to you. I am a very opinionated person about, I know, it's like, no, we thought you were like gentle and didn't speak your mind. Um, no, I, I, I'm, Frank would be a word that would describe my personality. But I think 
Associating Christian leadership with a personality type that's outspoken can cause many of us to sit on our hands and go, see, that's just, boldness is just not my thing because I'm not outspoken. Being outspoken about the significance and identity of Jesus is not a personality type option. It is the responsibility of every believer. If there is one thing in your life that you cannot afford to be neutral about, it is what you think about the identity and significance of Jesus Christ. You gotta know where you stand and you gotta have something to say. And if you don't have something to say, you gotta do the work and dig deeper. It is no longer a time period that we live in where we can just go, somebody else will do it or somebody else will say it better. No, Jesus said, when you're in those moments and you don't think you'll know what to say and culture's got you backed up against the wall, my Holy Spirit will fill you and give you the words. But he won't fill you if we're not prepared in the moment to actually articulate this stuff and watch this. To be prepared to be rejected. Like if you're gonna be outspoken about Jesus in our moment, you will be rejected. Well, they, they were rejected because they said, hey, you didn't see this coming. He's actually the Messiah. He died to save you from your sins and you need to jump on board with this or you are cast out from the people of God. That was, it sounds like, oh man, that's such a good message. Y'all just could get these guys killed. This, this is the exact same as me or us in our day telling the world what God says about sexuality, about marriage, about abortion, about whatever your issue is, injustice. And when we do that, even for me, y'all, there's a part of me, because we're in Auburn and, and we're so Christianized in our culture, when we get rejected, there's a part of us that's like, whoa, I'm doing something wrong. A lot of you were here a couple of years ago and I experienced some rejection for a sermon that I gave about biblical sexuality. And I'll just be real with you. I was like, I think I was 31, 32 years old. I'd never really experienced something like that. I was shaken. I was like, what, what is happening? Because so much of pastoring in the South is affirmation for being bold. And so I get up here and say something bold and everybody's like, yes, thank you. Voice of reason, voice of courage. But then I experienced just a little bit, tiny bit of rejection compared to what other guys are going through. And I was like, oh man, what am I doing? And who am I? And da, da, da. We've got to get ourselves to the place where we accept the fact that culture's version of what it means to be a human being is on the exact opposite end of what kingdom realities are because of Jesus. We have a message that smells like death to those who are perishing. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. That's why, by the way, I'm just going full cards on the table today. That is why I am so anti the seeker model of church because Paul said, listen, this gospel, it smells like someone's dying to people who are perishing, but to those who are being made alive, we are the aroma of Christ. The Holy Spirit will go before you. And to some people, your Jesus stuff will sound like hate. But where the Holy Spirit is at work, there will be others who are like, that's life. That's what I've been looking for. That's what I, I need that solid ground so bad because I can't find it out there. You are not hurting people by being outspoken about Jesus. You are healing them. In fact, the only thing you can do to hurt them is continue to be silent and ignorant. We've got to prepare to be outspoken. That is step one of what it means for great boldness to equal gospel readiness. Number two, and then I'm done. Here we go. Prepare to be outspoken about Jesus. Number two, prepare to be emboldened by Jesus. This is so huge. Prepare to be emboldened by Jesus. Acts four, what happens? 
God, give us more boldness. Building shakes. There are a few things in your life that if you try to do and invite God in, that will have more power attached to them than asking God to fill you with boldness to be a witness in a lost, dark, and broken world. This will bring more intimacy with God than you are used to. And, and I would argue will give you a new perspective on what Jesus did for you that will take you so much deeper in knowing him personally. Remember, this is not us as God's workers being assigned to be bold. This is us united with Christ, displaying the courage that he displayed as he died for us. I listened to this uh, 13-minute interview with Tim Keller that got put out the day he passed away. And it was him recalling 20 years ago when he originally was diagnosed with cancer and talking about a surgery where he could die in the surgery and some some realities that helped him get his feet on solid ground going into that surgery. And he talked about how, you know, our God is the only God to become a human being and actually have to display courage. The fact that Jesus was legitimately afraid the night before he died and had to find refuge in his father is something that is so comforting for human beings who are in a broken world like ours. And he talked about how Courage is not our effort to no longer have anything to be afraid of. Courage is our, actually our invitation to learn what Jesus learned, which is Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So when you decide to go to the next level of boldness in your relationship with God, it's not that you're gonna become a loud evangelist. It's that you're gonna know Jesus more intimately because you're living the way he lived. Tim Keller said it better than I ever could. He said, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the presence of joy. For Jesus, it wasn't, oh, I gotta dig myself off the ground and go die for these people. No, Hebrews says it was the joy set before him. What was that joy? His father's pleasure and his people's redemption. Jesus's joy was closeness to you and closeness with his father. If you actually go deeper into the scriptures and start to like, and I mean resource yourself and learn what is a biblical worldview about all of these divisive cultural issues and really develop your standing, you're not gonna become an intellectual professor. You're gonna become a loving man, a loving woman whose arms are open to a world that's desperately in need because Jesus is going to be the power filling you the entire time. And the blood of Jesus is what makes this possible. Hebrews says, we come before the throne of grace with courage, with boldness, with confidence. Why? Because the blood has given us access. And so I want us to like practice this message today as we take communion. You can get your elements out for communion right now. If you didn't get one, you can raise your hand right where you're at. Our team's gonna come around. And this is a time for you and I to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. None of this sermon is our effort to go and make some sort of a stand. It's just a reaction to the stand Jesus made for us on the cross. So the juice symbolizing the blood, the cracker or bread that's at all of our communion stations around this room symbolizes the body that was broken for us. And I I really wanna end this sermon telling you if you're far from God, This is just as much for you as the person who's been sitting on their hands. Courage is found where the people of God recognize that they've been forgiven and redeemed. So let's have a moment together in the presence of God. If you're new to the whole church scene and 
you've never put your faith in Jesus, maybe you just wanna drop that communion set beneath your seat and take a time to ask God, God, if you're real, reveal some of these kingdom realities to me. I don't know what this moment looks like for you, but husbands, pray over your wives. Let's take a moment in the presence of God and then we'll come back together and sing.